Today's reading is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is the word of the Lord. I'm okay, I've got this. Thank you very much for reading for us. Uh, good morning, folks. My name is Darren. If you've just joined us since the start of the service, you can hear me. Good, good. Three people can hear me. That's that's wonderful. Uh, well, folks, we're trying to we're trying to uh, uh, square the circle today. We were talking about some practicalities about evangelism yesterday, uh, but this morning we want to ground it in Scripture and see that this is not a new problem. This is a problem the early church faced from its. Uh, from its inception. And uh, we're going to look at a wonderful passage in response of the early church as the opposition was on right from the get-go. I want to begin um, by telling you about, maybe some of you even lived in London in 2009, uh, but the prominent British atheist and philosopher and scientist Richard Dawkins, he led a campaign on the side of the London red buses, and he put uh, this uh, banner on the buses that said, there's probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. And I thought, well, that's actually quite creative, 10 marks uh, for that, um, you know, not to go into it, but I thought you've actually got a lot more to worry about if there isn't a God, we'll save that for another time. But this campaign was a response to the uh, successful evangelistic course ran by uh, the HTB network in London called Alpha, maybe some of you have heard of that, and Dawkins was responding to Alpha advertising on buses, which had really done a great job in getting thousands of Londoners into, into churches around the city. And it prompted uh, the, the, the uh, professor emeritus of mathematics at Oxford University, John Lennox, uh, who is a Christian and an Ulsterman, proudly, and he said this, which I thought was rather inspiring, no one has a problem doing atheism or opposing Christianity in public, so let us Christians not be afraid of doing God. When I read that, I thought, gee, he's being wonderfully honest. He's, he's acknowledging that the gloves are now off, 
and culture is really against us. People will be mean or disrespectful. And uh, the the bus campaign was just one low-level example of many of cultural opposition to Christianity. And I like Professor Lennox's quote. It's inspiring, but it's also profoundly challenging. It's very difficult for us because if we're very honest, we know that we're afraid. We know that we are anxious creatures. We know uh, the discrepancy between what we read in the Scriptures and what we know is a biblical life to, to live out. Uh, there's a gap. And for many of us, we, we know if you've been a Christian for five minutes, you don't have to talk about Jesus for very long to know that it will cost you your credibility, both academically or professionally, or with your family or with your, your colleagues. And if you want to be a biblical Christian, you're going to face this sooner or later. That's what we were thinking about yesterday. But the challenge for us is how do we respond? And today's passage, I think, gives us some really helpful tools. Uh, It's a, a wonderful prayer of the early church, a huge lesson for them, and a huge lesson for us now. As the culture turns against us, we see great wisdom in both how to face the external pressures from culture and society, but how also to face the internal fears that we have as anxious and nervous beings. And I'm very glad that Dr. Luke, the author of Acts, he spotted this problem, and he gives us this lovely prayer uh, to address these issues. And I believe that if we can grab the theology in this prayer this morning, we'll be Christians and a church of such confidence and such poise that we'll be able to face whatever challenges, both externally or internally. And I'd like to frame this passage around three points. If you're taking notes, do keep the, the text open in front of you just to, so you can know that I am not producing this from a place of fiction. But we're going to consider the believer's support, the believer's convictions, and the believer's concerns. And uh, uh, he was at our church about a month ago, and he did a wonderful job uh, preaching on the passage just before this. I was actually fearing for my own job. It was such a good sermon. Uh, But it gave me a a great idea that uh, as I thought about praying for the the day away and evangelism. And the context of this is Peter and John, the two disciples, the apostles, uh, they have uh, healed a lame man. They've said they've done it in the name of Jesus, and straight away they're facing opposition. We're told earlier in this chapter, it wasn't read, they are described as ordinary men. Where I come from in Northern Ireland, if you describe someone as an ordinary man or woman, it means they're probably a pretty good bloke, uh, none of this highfalutin nonsense. Uh, but I'm going to teach you some Greek this morning. The word that is used to describe them as ordinary men is the Greek word idiotes. And you can use your imagine to where we got our own English word for idiot came from. It carried a broader prejudice. They were not well-educated and yet it was noted their clarity and authority they spoke with was because they had been with Jesus. But now the pressure was on. The pressure was on in verse 18 of this chapter, and the decision they had to make was, would they continue to be godly, or would they shut up and stop speaking about Jesus? For they were commanded by the Sanhedrin, in verse 18, they were called them in again, 
and commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And if you didn't know who the Sanhedrin were, these were not your ordinary modern clergy wimps such as myself. The Sanhedrin, if you could use your imagination, was the office of the chief executive, the Lord Chief Justice, the head of the police, and the archbishop all rolled into one. They were incredibly powerful with their authority and their influence. And so, how were they going to respond? Never mind about the apostles. I think often we can think, oh, well, of course the apostles would be persecuted. But what about ordinary men and women in the pew who come to Shatin Church today? Will I be a silent believer, or will I let my peers know who I belong to? Will I speak up, or will I be quiet? Will Peter and John speak up, or will they do what they're told and be quiet? Many of us, I think, who had the, uh, the privilege of growing up as Anglicans, as I did, um, when I became a Christian when I was 18, I realized that it seemed the whole point of my, the, the, the Anglican churches I had grown up in uh, was not to rock the boat. It seemed the whole point of was not to be offensive or stir up any trouble. And yet when I became a Christian when I was 18 and I, I read the, the Scriptures and I realized I'd believed in a gospel that called me to turn around, that's what repentance means, I thought, where on earth does this idea of the church not being offensive come from? It's caused enough waves in my own life. Why would I ever imagine it wouldn't cause lives in others as we talk about these things? I thought that the, the church was lame. I thought it lacked conviction. I met some men who told me that God was real. My sin was offensive to him, that God had a plan to rescue me from it through Jesus on the cross. And through that, I could find life and rescue. And gee, it was hard to follow Jesus, but boy, was it worth it. And they told me that one day when I was 18. I thought, I thought, gee, that's offensive. That is really, really offensive. But I'm so glad they told me and offended me that day because it was through that offense I, I found the cross, I found life, and uh, my eyes saw a window into eternity and the real world for the very first time. And what do the believers do? Well, it's taken us a long time to get there as we set up the context, but we heard it in our first verse, verse 23. What do they do? On their release, Peter and John, they go back to their own people and they reported all that was said. What's the first thing they do? They go back to their church. They go back to their small group. They go back to their Bible study. And I'm sure when they got there, I'm sure there was hugging. I'm sure there was celebrating. I'm sure there was lots of tea and yum cha. But what they do is they go back to the church to pray with the other believers. Let me ask you a question. In times of trouble, when the pressure's on, where do you go? Where do you turn to? Do you go and do retail therapy? Do you shut it out? Do you go to the darkest corners of the internet? Do you, do you just go to the pub and try to forget about it all? I tell you what I do. I have a party. It's called a pity party for one. And I find myself picking up the phone and I dial the number I should not dial. And 30 minutes later, there's a knock on the door and it's Pizza Hut, and they've brought the meal for two, for one. 
and I, regre- I regress, I tell you, I'm not, I'm not very strong. And I tell you, folks, it breaks, I don't know about this church, but it breaks the ministry team's heart at St. Andrews that we have so many brothers and sisters are infrequent in their attendance to, to our church. They're not committed to growth groups. They're not in a growth group at all. And then when they come and speak to us and they tell us they're struggling or having difficulties, I want to say, gee, I am not surprised because we know if they're fellowshipping alone, they have no place for support. They have no space for encouragement. They have no help when they face challenge. They have no opportunity to be rebuked or taught when they're starting to go off the rails. You know, there, there is never any description of any Christian in the Bible being a lone ranger. Not at all, not a chance. They wouldn't know what you're talking about. No, it's, there's only a fellowship. And that's why I think the fellowship of the ring is such a wonderful image for Christians as we struggle and persevere in difficulty together. You know, before I thought I, God brought me to Asia, I really thought I was being taken to the Middle East. And I, I was spending my second summer at university in Syria. And I tell you, the church in Syria, they depend on their brothers and sisters like it was a matter of life and death. Why? Because it really was. Because when they got converted, their family wanted to kill them. The secret police in Syria wanted to shut down every church because it was so offensive to them. And the government, well, the, the, the ruling uh, Muslim government just wanted to get rid of them uh, because, because it was just so preposterous to them. They had pressure on every side, and their fellowship was the most important thing that they knew. I wonder if you consider this church or each other with that sort of dependency. So when the pressure's on, they go back to the church. They get That's the starting point for their support, the local church. But importantly, we see not just their support, we see the helpful convictions that would steer them through this problem. Do you see what they say as they begin to pray? Verse 24, they raise their voices together and they pray, Sovereign Lord. They pray that God is sovereign. And we'll see, hopefully, that He's sovereign in creation and also in history and in time. They say, God, you're sovereign because you made land and sea and heaven and earth and everything in it. It's a wonderfully spiritual prayer. They say all of creation is in your hand. That's who you are. And in preparation for this sermon today, I read this, or read this, this passage this week, and I thought, gee, that is completely irrelevant. Why on earth are they praying this? Five of these seven verses are all about God. Why are they, why are they telling God things about Himself things that God already knows. Do they, they've got other concerns they need to bring before God. It says, this is all about God. Well, what they're doing is they're reminding themselves of who God is. They're filling themselves with thoughts and ideas of who their Father in heaven is. And the, 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 the Christian theologian and pastor who helped me understand this the most was a man called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who wrote an, a tremendous book called Spiritual Depression. And it's a book that I think every Christian should read because I know that everyone at one point or another will feel spiritually low or face a challenge that they just don't think they can get over on themselves. And he wrote this book called Spiritual Depression. And let me read to you what I consider to be the 
the high point of this book. He says this, we are not living on ourselves. We must not think of ourselves as ordinary people. We are not natural men or women. We are born again. God has given His Holy Spirit, and He is the Spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, to those who are particularly prone to spiritual depression through fear of the future, I say in the name of God and in the words of the apostle, stir up the gift, talk to yourself, remind yourself of what is true of you instead of allowing the future and thoughts of it to grip you. Talk to yourself, remind yourself of who you are and what you are and of what spirit is within you. And having reminded yourself of the character of the spirit, you will be able to go steadily forward, fearing nothing, living in the presence, present, ready for the future, with one desire only, to glorify Him who gave His all for you. Dr. Jones, help me to understand what Peter and John were doing. They were reminding themselves of the truth of God and the gospel. They were reminding themselves of God's power and sovereignty. They were saying, we've got the Spirit we're reminding ourselves of what you're like, God, who you are, what you've done for us. And it's a great lesson for us today. For be under no illusions, they had big, big problems. They were facing death and imprisonment. They were fearful. And what do they do? They remind themselves of who God is. They say, God, you're in charge of creation. And since you made it, and you're in charge of this problem, and you've put us here in this time, we need your help in it. And they remind themselves of that character. And they remind themselves because they know that even though they are very, very small, that one plus God is always a majority, and God's enemies are always very small when compared to Him. So they remind themselves that God's sovereign in creation but not just that, that he's also sovereign in history and in time. He sa- they say that they, God has spoken by his Spirit, and they take us to Psalm 2, that wonderful book of songs that we have from the Old Testament, a great, um, a great psalm of King David about how God's man was under pressure, and under the pressure that God's man, King David, was facing, they quote this, and they say, why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord. What they're saying is, you know, they raged against God's man. And it was all pointless. It was all a waste of time because God was really in control. So now they're saying what was true of King David those 700 years before, it is still true today. And this song Well, it was actually just a shadow. It was a whisper about David because it was actually about King King Jesus. And I love that verse, the nation's rage. That word rage is an onomatopoeia word. It's a sound word that an angry horse would make. I don't know if you've ever made or met an angry horse, you know, when it's so angry and it just makes this annoying noise, but it's held back in its reins or it's in its box. It can't do anything. And Peter's saying, you know, the nations, the powers, the kings, 
all they can do is make noises. They think they're going places, but it's just a noise when it comes to God. And well, I think the key verse for today is verse 27, as they they quote Psalm 2, and they say, indeed, like this Psalm, Herod and Pontius Pilate, the ruling authorities of the day, they met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you had anointed. Herod and Pilate, they thought they were doing something against Jesus, like the nations thought they were doing something against King David, but all along they were only doing what you, Father in heaven, had decided. And this is a wonderful piece of theology, folks, if you can get your head around this. If you can remember when you are in a tight corner that God has absolute control over every situation, you will be a Christian of such strength and confidence. For you see, what it's saying here is that God is the only one who can use both good and evil to bring about His purposes. Do you see what He's saying here? He's saying the world thought they'd got Him. The world thought they'd got God's man. The world thought they'd won when they stitched Jesus Christ to that cross. As they stitched Him up and speared Him, they thought they'd got Him. But nope, not a chance. They were only following the purpose and the knowledge and the will of God. That's what it's saying. And think about the mess of Easter. Think about the numerous sins, the sins of the Jews, the sins of the Gentiles, the sin of the chief priests, the sins of Pilate, the sins of Judas, the sins of the people, the sins of Barabbas, the sin of Herod, the sin of Peter. And this did not cause God, he is saying, to be anything less than God for all of history, all of time is moving towards God's appointed end. And let me tell you, folks, you've got to be very powerful. You've got to be very, very, very powerful indeed to have your enemies do your will even when they are acting against you. They're reminding themselves that God is sovereign in creation. He's sovereign in time. They're reminding themselves that God designed the set He's written the characters, he's set the play, and he's saying action. And they are all following his direction. That's what they remind themselves when the pressure is on. But just as a side note, and maybe some of us have this question, as I often do when people talk about God's sovereignty, it never diminishes us, just like in evangelism, of our own responsibility. We are still responsible for our actions and our choices. But crucially, whatever we choose, it never stops God from being God. That's how wonderful and glorious He is. But stop just for a moment and think. If you could apply this rationale to your own life, if you could stop and think what God being sovereign might mean for you. I don't know what you're facing. I I don't know many of you. I'm sure some of you are facing great pressures at the moment, maybe even dreadful things. But if I think about Peter and just 50 days before, if I'm Peter on that day at Golgotha, the place of the skull, and I'm standing up there looking at those three crosses, 
and I see, see the bloke in the middle, and I see him breathe his last, the bloke that I've quit my job for, the, jo- the bloke that I've left everything for, the, as I start to be tempted to see my hopes and dreams fade on the worst day of my life, I've got to do what Dr. Jones tells us. I've got to do what they did that day uh, when the persecution was on. I've got to say, yes, I have God's Spirit. I've been saved and made righteous by Christ's blood. I've been adopted into God's family. I have the name of His Son. When God looks at me, He no longer sees sinful Darren. He sees the perfection and beauty of Christ. I am clothed with honor. My old is gone and forgotten, and I have an inheritance and a first fruits with Christ. That's filling yourself with the things of God. That's starting to think biblically. This isn't self-help and self-love and like reading inspirational quotes from Instagram. This is telling ourselves the truth of the gospel and the truth of God. And like I said yesterday, like an old Coke machine, You've got to pay, and then you've got to bang it. You've got to bang it from your head all the way down to your heart, and that's when it becomes true. It's always true, but that's, when, that's what gives you the power and the conviction to go forward. That's what gives you the constancy. That's what gives me my joy, which is always stable when I focus on God, not the variability of my happiness or my situation or my circumstances, for they are always prone to change. What I tell myself is the truth of God, and that is what gives you a constant joy and a constant confidence. And a joy in God is very different to a happiness that this world can give, but it it can give you a joy even in your darkest days. So, this is thinking biblically. This is the believer's convictions We've established where they go to get their support. They think these things together, and they remind themselves of how powerful God is. Because you know what I'm fed up with? I'm fed up with Christians who seem to believe in some lame lame deity who needs to be paid off or bought off through some sort of religion. Or, or, or people who think that God is just some sort of cosmic chess player and they're at the end game, and it's not going very well. And God has to frantically, you know, think, how on earth am I going to get out of this terrible situation in this chess match by moving the pieces around? God is not like that. God is always good, and He is always in control. So their support, their convictions, and finally, their concern. Do you see what their prayer is if they rem- after they remind themselves who God is. They say, now, Lord, consider the threats and enable your servants to speak the word with great boldness. What do they not pray for? That God would make things nice. They don't pray for deliverance. When I have pushback or challenge or difficulty or even the rare time where it feels like persecution, I, my prayers tend to be, God, look at me. Look how I'm suffering for your name. God, would only you make it nice? They say, no, Lord, would you make us strong? Would you make us bold so that we could take your word out into the world? Lord, stretch out your hand and do signs and wonders so men and women would know that you're true 
and that they would be saved. Lord, send us out with courage to face the culture. And how often do we pray that God would just make it nice? Our prayers can feel so small and temporary. And I think this is the key. This is the prayer that every church needs to pray if you want to be a bold church. And well, God willing and God forbid, uh, we're not facing, I don't think, a great fire of persecution in Hong Kong and indeed many uh, Western and developed cities. Uh, what I th- and, and I hope it stays that way. I think what we're facing at the minute is what I would describe as the great freeze, the great cooling as the culture cools towards spiritual things and starts to reject us, not in a directly violent or confrontational ways, but it seeks to undermine us in many other spheres of media or, or politics. And I think as the world goes cold to us, the biggest tragedy the church could make is if we go cold as well. If we go cold to spiritual things, we, we just sign our own death warrant. They don't need to come and kill us because we consign ourselves to the irrelevance of history. You know, when the pressure's on, they pray, Lord, make us bold, stretch out your hands, and they pray these things by reminding themselves of who God is. That's what gives them courage. So they pray, Lord, send us out with your word. And well, after they prayed, verse 31, look at it with me down on your sheet. After they prayed, the place where they met was shaken, They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does that mean? Well, if you notice, God's Spirit is never separated from His Word. And they spoke the Word of God boldly, we are told. And in the upcoming chapters of this book, a wonderful book of Acts, we see how the church uh, faced the persecution by preaching the gospel, and many thousands were added to their number. They knew it had to go out. They knew they had to meet together. They knew they had to pray. They knew they had to remind themselves the truth of God. And they knew they had to preach for courage. Because if they don't have courage, they're not going to be faithful. Because the world doesn't want to know what we believe about repentance or about God's wrath or about his views on sexuality or hell. They they don't want to hear it. And if we stop doing these things, we'll stop praying. We'll just stop if we don't have courage and we'll think someone else will pray. And if we don't have courage, we'll stop talking, because we'll think someone else will talk. I really hope that someone is. And if we stop meeting together and praying and being reminded, we'll stop giving, and we'll stop serving, because we'll think it's not relevant or important. But the convictions of the early church was to take God's Word out with boldness, not to reject Christ, but to follow Him and to do these things. Amen. Let me pray. Father, Father, we come to you in weakness, and we are encouraged that through you, our weakness, Father, your, your strength is made perfect. But we acknowledge we are anxious and frightful creatures at time, Lord. We, we don't feel confident. Lord, I pray that as we respond to, to these scriptures, that we could remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel, that you would move it from our heads to our hearts, that we would be Christians of confidence and poise. And this week, Lord, we would have opportunities to be brave in your name, to share the word. And as we do that, your spirit would be at work through us. 
and open the eyes of the blind that they might see Christ for the very first time. In his name we pray. Amen.